Tonight we're going to continue with uh, the address of Stephen uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, again, to get back into the text here of Acts chapter 7, let's uh, review a little bit uh, what we did last week. The first thing to remember in the overall book of Acts, chapter 7 is just one chapter in a big book. So remember what happened before Acts chapter 7 and what happens after Acts chapter 7 is a movement, is a flow. It's a description of how the Holy Spirit built the church and how that church was uh, separated from the nation Israel And the result would be that the gospel would go out not just from Jerusalem, not just from Judea, but into the uttermost parts of the world in fulfillment of what Jesus predicted in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Now also remember, and I think we mentioned this last week, that it wasn't because the Christians overtly heard Acts chapter 1-8 and then proceeded to do it in a spirit of obedience and expand outward into the world. The book of Acts gives a far more sobering, realistic picture of what actually happened. What happened was that the church was forced out of Jerusalem by persecution and was then they, the gospel then spread out from Jerusalem, not because the Christians were all obedient. It was just because the Holy Spirit, as the sovereign one in history, pushed them out. Uh, pictures so often of our own sanctification uh, that it's not always because we chose to obey the Lord every day. It's rather that because he is grooming us to live with him for eternity, that he, as a parent is to a child, he is training us for the future. We have no idea of that future, but he does, and he's allowing things to happen in our lives, some of them evil, to prod us into sanctification and maturing. So that's that's the picture of the book of Acts. And what we find in this chapter of Acts 7 is what we call an apologetic. Now, apologetics uh, is not a study of apologizing for the faith. The word apologetic, I think we've already gone over this before, but I want to review it. The word apologetic means to present a reasonable defense of the Christian faith. It was used uh, in court cases in Greece. Uh, Socrates was to give an apologetic when he was on trial. So the way to understand the word apologetic in these kinds of contexts is think of yourself defending yourself either in a court or defending yourself in a panel discussion Uh, involving something you confessed about the Christian faith, and now uh, you're having a group of people basically trying to attack you in public. So that's the situation Stephen faces. And last week, I gave you some of the background of 
why Stephen, who came from a Hellenistic background, uh, was so sovereignly chosen by God to pull this thing off. Remember what I said is that when the Jews were exiled, they went into all the world. Jewish businessmen probably went in, in business all through Europe, Southeast Asia, and other places, Japan, and so forth. Remember, um, even prior to the exile, uh, Solomon had two completely uh, separate navies, uh, largely for commercial um, enterprises and trade. So Jewish businessmen were out into the world, and because they were businessmen, they had to interact with the local communities, and so they were uh, experts in various languages. So at the time of Christ, <clears throat> some of the Hellenistic Jews had come back to Jerusalem either for business purposes or just in retirement maybe to have their families uh, come back and spend their last days in, the, in Palestine, Israel. So, in any case, Stephen is specifically said in the book of Acts to have come from a Hellenistic background. That's Acts chapter 6. And I mentioned that the, the this created a culture difference that was very significant. The Jews that had lived outside of the land and learned other languages were really culturally apart from the Palestinian Jews who had just stayed in the land all this time. And so um, the, the, the situation here in Acts 7 is Stephen comes out of a synagogue that was made up of Hellenistic Jews. Um, that's why in, uh, I think it's in Acts 7, 9 um, here, uh, no, in, in 6, 9, let me, let me get into chapter 6, verse 9. Um, you'll see there it says there arose uh, some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia uh, disputing with Stephen. So this is a controversy that occurred within the Hellenistic community. And you'll notice that the last two places mentioned in chapter 6, verse 9, Cilicia and Asia, are the areas where later the Apostle Paul, after his conversion, which resulted largely from this incident in Acts chapter 7, since Paul was here listening to Stephen, when Paul was finally converted on the Damascus Road, where did he go? He was as a missionary into these areas, which is now Turkey. And so the deal here is that Paul himself had Hellenistic background. So it's very interesting that in spite of the details of this particular martyrdom, there's a whole bunch of historical background when you, you zoom out and look at the big picture of what's going on in Acts. This is a crucial event because it shows a gradual beginning of the separation of the church from the nation Israel. You have Hellenistic Jews who have going to accept the gospel. Some of them are not. There's going to be a controversy. But 
it's the first time we see in the book of Acts where there's actually a community that is different. You remember I mentioned how um, there, one of the problems in Acts chapter 6 was the um, poverty program uh, for, uh, for, for the people that were in that synagogue. And the point is, uh, I mentioned this before, that Jews had poverty programs for orphans and widows particularly. But the very fact that it's in Acts chapter 6, you see it's the Hellenic Jews having a poverty program for Hellenic widows and Hellenic orphans. So, again, you see the cultural shift that's beginning to take place here. And Luke is sensitive to this. And he did a lot of research, as he says in in Acts chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1. So, he reports Stephen's uh, sermon in very clear terms. And, of course, Paul was his traveling companion, so you can well imagine that Stephen uh, and Paul had a long discussion about this whole incident of Stephen because the Holy Spirit used this incident with Stephen to pierce to the heart of Paul and set him up for his later conversion on the Damascus Road. Now, the the problem that Stephen faced in Acts 7 is is analogous to what you see on the political climate in our country. Um, You have in verse 11 um, of uh, Acts, uh, let's see, uh, Acts 6, I guess it is. Again, let me look at Acts 6, 11. Yes, in Acts chapter 6, um, notice what these people that disputed with Stephen were doing. Notice in verse 10 of Acts chapter 6, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. In other words, they weren't able to refute what Stephen was saying, so they managed to do subterfuge, which you see today going on in our society. The first thing you see is in verse 11, they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Totally false. Total fabrication. But they're using lies and rhetoric that's false to try to create a scene here. And, again, you see that in the media today. Um, If you you dislike somebody and you can't answer their arguments, uh, so start creating a rhetorical campaign against them, reporting facts that aren't facts, and taking things out of context. Notice in Acts chapter 6, verse uh, 12, they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon Stephen, and they seized him and brought him to the council. So it's a deliberate campaign to create a scene, to try to intimidate and suppress Stephen in what he's doing in articulating the gospel. And uh, you notice what it says in verse 13, verse 14. They set up false witnesses. Well, remember the Ten Commandments? False witnesses are violating the ninth commandment that respects language. So here you have the illegitimate assaults on Stephen, along with the Holy Spirit testifying that Stephen, in all of it, was speaking the truth, 
but they were unable to respond to it in an adult fashion. So they had to resort to lies. They had a campaign of violence. They had a campaign of gossip and maligning. And that was what precipitated this uh, need for Stephen to give an apologetic. So, in Acts chapter 7 now, we see his argument. And I wanted to add here um, an interesting point about the framework. It was reading Acts chapter 7 many, many, many years ago uh, that I came across the framework idea. Because I looked at what we're reading in Acts 7, and I started analyzing Stephen's apologetic to these unbelievers and to the civil authorities. And I noticed, as we will, that he gives a series of historic events, one event after another, and he does so to show certain doctrinal truths of God's sovereign mission for Israel. And this got me to thinking, and out of it I began to study how Joshua, in the latter chapters of the book of Joshua, Joshua at the covenant renewal, he does much the same thing, reviewing it. Uh, you study the, the prophets, they do the same thing. They review event after event. So anyway, interesting for those of you who are interested in the framework, uh, this is how that idea started to gel in my, my, my thinking. Well, let's follow Stephen's argument. In chapter 7, he begins, after, after he's challenged to give an answer, and again, same kind of concept, verse uh, 1, the high priest said, are these things so? Okay, so the answer is yes, they are. But he's going to give a detailed reasoning why the claims that he was making are true. And that the false claims that he was blaspheming Moses are false. So let's watch his argument. In verses 1 to 5, what does he say? He says, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia uh, before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to him, Get out of your country from your relatives and come to a land I will show you. Now, as I think I mentioned this last week, and that is that it shows, first of all, Judaism did not start in Palestine or Israel. The land of Israel is not the location where Judaism started. Judaism started with the call of Abraham out of what is now Iraq. And then I also mentioned that there was a, a gentleman who had written editorial or op-ed in the Jerusalem newspaper, and he pointed out that Islam did not start either in Israel. You see, see Israel is always the cauldron where Christianity, Islam, and Judaism sort of collide. And they all claim to have a, have a claim on that. Well, yes, the Jews do. Muslims don't. But the point is that neither Islam nor Judaism began or originated in Israel. The only religion of the three that started in Israel is Christianity. So there's a kind of interesting uh, historical fact that you might throw out in a conversation someday if you wanted to, to start an interesting conversation with somebody. So, Judaism began in Iraq. He came out of the land of the Chaldeans. He dwelt in Haran, which is up near what is now Syria today. And uh, then he came down into the land. 
And then it says in verse 5 that God gave him no inheritance, not even enough to set his foot on. Remember, he had to even buy some land for burying his wife. And then it said he had no child. Uh, so two things that were not true of Abraham from the human point of view, in spite of the promises of God, is he did not own the land in his lifetime and he did not have any natural son. So into that, we have uh, the, the Abrahamic covenant as a background. And that's why in verse 5, you see the way Stephen is constructing this, because every well-educated Jew knows the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, Genesis 15. And so he says, not even enough to set his foot on, even when Abraham had no child, God promised to give it to him for possession and to his descendants after him. So the promise was the land and the seed. But at this point in history, he didn't have any land and he didn't have any seed. Stephen again points this out so they'll realize there's a supernatural sovereign work of God and Stephen is going to argue against the Jewish critics of his ministry. He's going to argue basically this. If you look at the pattern of God's sovereign development of our nation Israel in the early centuries, if you look at the pattern, if you look at the record of the Old Testament, you'll see certain things that I say, that is Stephen, that I say a parallel the Lord Jesus. You are doing the same thing to the Lord Jesus that this nation did to past deliverers. And he's going to start doing this. Um, and we want to develop that. Notice in verses 6 to 8. Now in 6 to 8, what does he do? God spoke this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, that they would bring one into bondage and oppress them for, for 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Okay. So there's the... Uh, three generations history of what was going on with Abraham. First Abraham, he had the second generation, which was Isaac, and the third generation, Yaakov or Jacob and Jacob's sons. So there's a whole period of time there where this family, remember, it's just a family here. There's no nation yet, just a family. And the record of that family spiritually isn't too great. Uh, you have attempted murder. Uh, you have um, a, a collapse of their culture. Uh, Judah, one of the sons of Jacob that's going to be uh, the ancestor of the Messiah, Judah, goes out and he fornicates with the Canaanite priestess. Uh, so, so the whole point is that the family is going downhill. And we studied that, if you remember, back years ago when we were working with the, the time of, of the call of Abraham. God had to put them down into Egypt to keep them from being uh, assimilating and being perverted by the Canaanite culture in the land. So they went down to Egypt, and I pointed out back in those days when we dealt with the call of Abraham, remember I said if you look at the later chapters of Genesis, you see that the Egyptians discriminated against the Jews. They wouldn't eat, even eat with them. 
And the point that is, is, that is very important is that they were going from a syncretistic society that could have absorbed them into a segregationist society which would keep them separate. And so God knew that during the development, if they couldn't, if they couldn't get with the program in three generations, they weren't going to get with the program over four centuries. So God changed their uh, environment. He changed their circumstances to prevent the decay that was already going on. Now, here's where Stephen is really slick. And he has an argument here. And obviously, the, the, the people that he's talking to, remember, these guys are the theological experts of the dime. These guys know exactly the Old Testament scripts. Unfortunately, they, they have resorted to commentaries or something. And they haven't, they haven't really understood the foundational documents of the Judea, Judaic faith. And here Stephen is, who really, from all we know, uh, isn't a member of the Sanhedrin. He's not a Pharisee. Uh, he's not in a government position. But he's lecturing these people in the council. And it takes great courage. He's walking into a room filled with Ph.D. theologians. And he doesn't have a Ph.D., but he's going back to the original source material of the faith. Now, watch what he says. He's going to start talking about um, Joseph. So in verses 11 uh, and following, let's watch something. I want to point out something in the text here. If you look at verses 11 to 16, see what it says in verse 11, now this is the Joseph story. You know the Joseph story. We've already gone through that. But I want you to see how Stephen, throughout this whole thing, is using the Old Testament. Um, it's, it's 60, 70% Old Testament text here. But, but notice the nuances that Stephen sows into his apologia, his apologetic. Um, he says in verse 11, Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan. Our fathers found no sustenance. But when Yaakov, or Jacob, heard that there was grain in Egypt, he set out, his his, set out our fathers first. Fathers there being the sons of Jacob, who became the father of the twelve tribes. So he sent out our fathers. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And we know the story. Now, if you look at verse 13, and you compare it with what he's saying um, in verse uh, 10. Um, let's see. Verse 10. Yeah, no, verse 8. The first mention of Joseph in this text, chapter 7, in verse 8, the patriarchs became envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. So, verse 8 and verse 9 show the first advent or the first mention of Joseph. Joseph was rejected. Now, it's interesting that in verse 13, after Joseph is down there, they, the brothers come down, they get the grain, and they bring Jacob down. Notice how Stephen calls Joseph. He says in verse 13, Now, the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers. 
do you see a pattern here? The first time the brothers, which represent the, the ancestors of the nation, the first time they reject Joseph. The second time they recognize who he is and accept him. Now, what kind of a pattern do you observe here? This is, this is a pattern that fixed the career of Jesus. And you see how, what Stephen is doing? He's setting up the council to understand that, yes, the Lord Jesus has just been crucified. He was rejected by you people. Now, just understand, we Christian, we Messianic Jews believe that he is going to come back the second time. And when he comes back the second time, you guys are going to recognize what happened. So, just, just watch this. Now, it's going to, and Stephen is going to pull this stunt again. But if you pay attention to the details of the text, uh, this is a great address. And you can really appreciate the kind of thinking that went into this. This is not an emotional-based argument. This is a carefully reasoned argument. And it's a very scriptural argument. It's all grounded on the, on the text of the Word of God. And it's reasoning, just like Jesus taught, taught from the Old Testament, with reasoning, thinking. You can't believe if you can't think. Thinking is required to appreciate the Word of God. Remember, the Word of God is the Word of God, and God is omniscient, and God is fully rationally coherent. So if we're going to, if we're going to receive his revelation, his verbal revelation, we better be prepared to think a little bit and not just emote. The gospel is not based on feelings. The gospel truth is based on fact and reasoning about those facts to the correct interpretation of those facts. So, the pattern of Joseph is he's rejected by his brethren. He goes away, leaves the brethren to provide salvation. And then when he provides the salvation to the brothers, he's known to them. Now, that's a perfect profile of the Lord Jesus Christ's career. And where you see this, and you kind of have to learn to watch this, is in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew uses the word, and, and this confuses some people sometimes. Matthew will pick on something in his, in his delivery of writing that, that Gospel, and he'll say something like this. He'll say, and thus it was fulfilled. So people see that verb, fulfill, and they think when Matthew quotes a passage that is fulfilled by Jesus' actions, that Matthew is saying that it was a prophecy in the Old Testament. Well, there are prophecies in the Old Testament that were indeed fulfilled by Jesus. But there were also patterns that were fulfilled by Jesus. And Matthew uses the same verb, fulfill. For example, there's a passage in the Gospel of Matthew where he's talking about um, Jesus um, and the, the Herodian genocide and so on when he's a child. And he talks about it thus was fulfilled, the pattern of racial in the Old Testament, weeping over the exilic, uh, you know, the, when they, at the fall of you know, the kingdoms. Uh, racial there being a standing of the mothers, Jewish mothers at the time, when they saw their sons and their husbands uh, taken away uh, into the exile. 
And so that's an Old Testament passage, but it's not a messianic prophecy. It's just a historic description of something that happened. But Matthew sees that as parallel to Joseph and Mary carrying Jesus down into Egypt. Um, and he, 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 and the weep, weeping of the, um, at Bethlehem. So you'll see fulfilled in Matthew's usage and that same hermeneutic, the same kind of argument is what Stephen's using here to say that um, Joseph's life, uh, and, and Stephen is, he's not like Matthew, he doesn't say it's fulfilled. It's more subtle than that. Stephen says, I'm just telling you your own history, people. Go back to your original source material and consider Joseph. Joseph was a savior to our nation. The first time you rejected him, yet he went away. And while he was away from you, you didn't know what he was doing. Like, we don't know what Jesus is doing in, in heaven at the Father's right hand, although we have hints in Hebrews and other passages that he's making an accession for us and other things. But we don't know everything that he's doing there. So, Joseph goes to Egypt. He, he gets in a position where he can provide for his family. And finally, the brothers come down to Egypt and they recognize him. Pattern again. The first time Joseph is rejected, he leaves the nation. He sets up provision for the nation, acting like a savior. And then when the need is felt and Jacob and the sons, remaining sons, decide they're hungry, they, they've got a problem with food. So they have a need. And to be saved nutritionally, to be saved health-wise, they recognize they have a need. And so they go down to Egypt and they meet Joseph and they know him. So keep that in mind because now we're going to start another section. And by the way, these sections are in the notes of the lectures. And I'm basically, we've gone through um, the first section, section one. Uh, on page, let's see, what page is this? This is page 60 in the notes. And now, uh, section 1 is uh, chapter 7, verses 2 through 16, the origin of Israel. Now we're going to go uh, to Roman 2, the origin of the Torah. Because the, the, behind all the arguments, the false witnesses that have come in to accuse Stephen are basically saying... He's attacked the Torah, that is the Bible, and he's attacked the temple. So Stephen, in this apologetic, he's defending the fact that he has not attacked the Torah. In fact, he's challenging the court, the, the council, to say, why don't you just read the original Torah, forget your commentaries, and understand your basic Jewish history, which you say you know, but you evidently don't know because you have not been careful observers of your own history. So all of this background is Stephen's defending the fact that he has not attacked the Torah like, the, like his critics argue. Now in chapter 7, verse 17, we start that sec second section that I discuss in the notes on page 60. All right, let's see what Stephen's doing here. Verses 17, and we'll probably, there are limited time tonight, we'll probably only get down to uh, 
um, 28 or somewhere in the 20s. Uh, the whole section goes to uh, verse 43, but we're not going to get there tonight. Um, we'll just do uh, start in chapter 7, verse 17, and see how far we get. Okay, we're at verse 17. When the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied. So verse 17 reports, now we are not dealing with a Jewish family. We are dealing with a Jewish nation because they've multiplied. And verse um, uh, 18, until another king or pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph. So there's the historical setup. Now we're transitioning from watching the pattern of Joseph to watching the pattern of Moses. Moses now comes into Stephen's attention, and look what he does with Moses' life. Let's watch. The Pharaoh arises that didn't know the earlier Pharaoh, and therefore did not really realize this issue of Joseph, and therefore did not understand all these Semitic Jews that were in his land. Verse 19, the man dealt treacherously with our people, oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so they might not live. Remember, that was the story at the beginning of the book of Exodus. Uh, there was a basic uh, population control, sort of like uh, Margaret Sanger with her eugenics, um, Planned Parenthood and so on. Uh, Planned Parenthood was not just for women's health. Planned Parenthood was to destroy the Afro-American community, basically. And so we have then... The, the attack on the Jewish population by killing their babies. It was an early form of eugenics. And we then go to verse 20. 20. Uh, yeah. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. So there's the historical incident. See how God sovereignly works? Moses didn't put himself in Pharaoh's household. God arranged circumstances that brought him into Pharaoh's house. So, verse 22. Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. You know, it's kind of amusing to watch some of the earlier Bible critics that seemed to think there was no literacy involved and the Bible just was all oral tradition that got pieced together and way, way later, centuries after Moses, somebody decided to write it all down. Um, here, here it explicitly says, Moses knew the wisdom of Egypt. Moses was educated in Egypt. Moses knew the Egyptian language. He knew the Egyptian hieroglyphics. That's his background. And as conservative Old Testament scholars point out, there are Egyptian words that you see in high, not high, ultra high frequency, but you see more Egyptian words embedded in the Pentateuch than you do elsewhere in the Bible. Isn't that kind of a sign that whoever compiled this book, whoever wrote it up, um, had some Egyptian background? So anyway... Um, but it, what you want to look at here is some of the way Stephen goes about this. In verse 22, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty. And watch this phrase. He was mighty in words and deeds. You see that, see that uh, phrase there? 
mighty in words and deeds. Now, what's striking about this is these mighty in words and deeds were apparently used by the Christian community to describe Jesus as mighty in words and deeds. In fact, you can see the very same expression in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 19. Luke 24, 19, that phrase, mighty in words and deeds, is used of Jesus. Now, apparently, it was already being used. Maybe Stephen himself was using this in the Christian community prior to this episode in Acts chapter 7. In any case, I think it's interesting how in verse 22 of chapter 7, Stephen brings into this review of Exodus the exact terminology that was in contemporary history was being used then of the Lord Jesus. So, Think back what we've done now. Stephen describes the life of Joseph and stresses the first um, manifestation of Joseph to the brothers as rejection. And he describes the second appearance of Joseph as acceptance. Now, don't you suppose he might do this again, this time to Moses? Let's watch. He says Moses was mighty in words and deeds. Now he records an event from the book of Exodus. Now let's, let's look at what happened here. This is not just an interesting bedtime story disconnected from everything else. When you read the Bible, you're not reading a bunch of marbles that are rolling around the table totally disjointed from everything else. The Bible is a necklace and the marbles have places on the necklace. And when you read the Bible carefully, and in the framework we stress the linkage that goes on from chapter to chapter, from historical era to historical era, that fortifies your faith. You're not dealing with a collection of random Bible stories. What you're dealing with is a coherent revelation of God's program in history. So now this incident that we're going to look at now in, in chapter 7, repeated by Stephen from the book of Exodus. Let's watch. It says um, in verse um, 23, When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. So he, he knows his Jewish identity. And seeking one of them suffering wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. So now Moses, this is his kind of this first public appearance. Let's see if he's accepted or whether he's rejected on his first public appearance. And he saw one of them suffering, he defended him, and he avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed, now notice this in verse 25, for he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver him, deliver them by his hand. And notice the last clause of verse 25. Understand again, thinking of Stephen's apologia, his apologetic before this council of theologians. In verse 25, he supposed that his brethren, this is Stephen's commentary in that Exodus story, for he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not 
understand. The next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. See, this isn't a case of a Jew versus an Egyptian. This is a case of a Jew versus a Jew. So he's not going to go in there and go after, after him like he did before. Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away. Now, see, this is Moses' first appearance and what's happening. He's pushed away saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You see this pattern? This is Moses' first appearance. He's being rejected by his brethren, even though, according to verse 25, he understood that God was going to deliver them, the Jews, the Jewish nation, by his hand. But they did not understand, just like Jesus came to Israel in Stephen's day, and he was trying to deliver them, but they did not understand. Just as parallel as can be. So, verse 27, the he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? That's just exactly the treatment that the Lord Jesus had uh, just prior to, to this time of Acts chapter 7. Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? So word had gotten around the community that Moses had murdered. And he had not murdered a Jew, of all things, he murdered an Egyptian. So now he's in deep doo-doo with the Egyptian uh, authorities. And what does he do? Okay, um, then at this saying, Moses fled. He became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. So he's going to be in, away from the nation. Now this is the end of Moses' first advent, as it were. So he goes away, just like Joseph was separated from his brothers and went away to uh, prepare the way for the delivery of the Jewish family, the tribes, the 12 tribes, and the tribal sons. And um, now Moses, he's going to go away. And while he goes away, he's going to be led by the Lord to be commissioned and provide salvation for the Jewish nation. See, Stephen knows his history. Stephen is going back to original source material, and that's why I think the reaction was so violent against him. They're just plain emotionally angry at Stephen for challenging their little uh, operation, their cultural uh, processes and prejudices. Um, Stephen's trying to break through that. So, now verse um, thirty. See, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian. That's verse 29. Verse 30, um, when 40 more years have passed away, now um, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. That's the second person of the Trinity, God the Son prior to incarnation, appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Sinai. And we studied that along with the Exodus event and the Mount Sinai event. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he drew to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, and this is important because Stephen repeats exactly what the text in the Old Testament is saying. Stephen is not making this up. Remember again, the accusation against Stephen is that he's attacking the Torah. And he's not. 
this whole address, he's using the Torah to show that the very document you say I'm demeaning is the document that undercuts your position. Sort of like today, um, you could almost argue that the when you get some of the uh, progressives that don't care about America and uh, they want to transform it, supposedly so we can perfect mankind into a great millennial kingdom brought in by man's works, you have people who, as conservatives, were calling them back to the Constitution. Well, apparently it's the same kind of thing back here. Stephen is calling these people back to their founding document. So, verse 32 he, he makes it very clear by direct quotation. This is not Stephen's commentary. This is a quote. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. So it's a very clear theophany. So this isn't some group of guys getting together and inventing this. This is Moses face-to-face -face with God as probably no other human being other apart from Jesus uh, had ever, ever done this and has ever done it. And you'll notice in 32, something that we mentioned back when we were studying the Exodus in Sinai. Look at how God entitles himself. See what it says? I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, that's a reference to the Abrahamic covenant. And remember, what did the Abrahamic Covenant promise? There were three great promises that we studied back then. Call of Abraham. The Abrahamic contract gave the land to the Jews, the believing descendants of Abraham. He, gave, he promised them a seed, a supernatural seed. The promise to Eve back at the, the fall of man. The promise that the woman would bring forth a child from the Lord. Would be would be would come through the descendants of Abraham. That's the second thing, land, seed, and the third thing promised in the Abrahamic covenant was a worldwide blessing, which is the future of Israel. There will not be world peace until the millennial kingdom comes, and you have an uh, incorruptible global administration. You won't have a group of half-competent accountants like we have in the UN. Um, you won't have people like the European Parlament who that just not, <laughs> deliberately hired an architect to build their building so it would look like the Tower of Babel. Uh, none of that's going to happen. You're going to, in the Millennial Kingdom, have the Lord Jesus Christ as resurrected one accompanied by resurrected saints and believers who will be the administration globally and incorruptibly. Mortal flesh has a sin nature. It's always corruptible. That's why the Bible is arguing for limited government for mortal history. You will not have a global government authorized until you have resurrection personnel available to administer it. You can't trust mortals with global power political uh, implication of the whole Old Testament. So, 32, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then the Lord said, take your sandals off, for the place you stand is holy ground. 
I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groanings and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Now, I've stressed over and over Stephen's mode of argument. And we, again, tonight we're not going to get all to verse 43. But we can at least get here and, and think about what we're looking at as far as Stephen's argument. Remember the parallel? Joseph, first advent, first manifestation, he was rejected. Second, he goes away. Third, he's recognized when he saves his brothers. Now, Moses. Moses is rejected. He goes away. God calls him after 40 years of preparation. And he, he, he commissions Moses to go and to deliver the nation. Now watch how Stephen describes this. Verse, 20, uh, verse 35. This is Stephen's commentary on the text of the Old Testament. What do you notice about the first clause in verse 35? It says, this Moses whom they what? It's this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who will make you a ruler and a judge? So he's quoting that passage in, in, in Exodus. Or, yeah, in Exodus. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And he, Moses, brought them out, or God brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs and so forth. So there's the deliverance. So now here's the second parallel. Not only is Joseph's life a profile of the Jesus' life, but so is Moses. On his first manifestation to the nation Israel, he's rejected. He goes away, and he, he, he's now set up to come and be their deliverer. And as he is set up until he's a deliverer, he comes back. He's going to be recognized after a struggle, by the way. He's going to be recognized, and he's going to lead the nation and save the nation, just as Joseph saved his brothers. So, Stephen is very, very clear that he's arguing typologically. He's arguing that you guys that are fussing about our claims as Christian believers, that Jesus is somehow... Um, what we're preaching about Jesus collides with the Torah is completely wrong and I've just taken you to the original source material and if you've been listening to me instead of emoting and fussing and grinding your teeth you would see that the pattern of Jesus that we are preaching we Messianic Jews are preaching that pattern is embedded in the Torah that you say we are attacking so, well, we're going to continue next week with uh, how this develops and how Stephen is going to further uh, end his apologetic and the, the reaction to it. And keep in mind, if you zoom out from the text now and the big idea, what we're seeing here as a result of Stephen's address, Stephen is rejected, but the text very carefully and, of course, Luke, who wrote the text, was traveling companion with Paul. So Paul told him all about the details. Paul is telling Luke, hey, look, <laughs> I know about what happened at Stephen's death because I was right there participating in it. In fact, 
they threw his clothes at my feet. So, it's, it's, see again, see how God circumstantially works. We have to learn as believers to, to, to be alert enough so when incidents come our way, when circumstances change, instead of fussing at them, we ought to say, you know, Lord, open my eyes to what you're doing. You brought this person, he, he's interrupted me, but you brought this particular person to me at this particular time. Now, what should I do? What, what is it that you're trying to tell me through this so-called chance meeting with this person? Or it may be a, a circumstance in your life. It's very frustrating because you wanted to do something. All of a sudden, you get interrupted. Now, we have to, to you know, reduce our blood pressure, calm down, take a deep breath, and say, Lord, what are you doing in my life at this point with this particular incident? What kind of a test is this to my faith? And i got to look to you because right now I'm upset and I want to know what you're doing in my life. And this is what Stephen is doing. He's saying, Jews, understand your history. Understand the circumstances that God has arranged in your basic history. And all of this, again, zooming out from the details of Joseph and the details of Moses. In the large picture, this whole incident is to set up the building of the body of Christ in history. Because the man who is sitting here watching this whole episode, listening to Stephen, listening to Stephen's argument, listening to how Stephen exegeted the Old Testament text, is going to go out, still in unbelief, he's going to travel to Damascus, up in what is now Syria, and he is going to be converted. God is going to call him in a dramatic way and here we will have a conversion of a terrorist. Paul is an example of how God can reach down into the heart of the most hardened terrorist. And we need to remember that today as we deal with the whole Muslim situation. That ISIS or these other people um, that are going around killing people, um, this is the kind of a situation that God can easily reach down and into the hearts of these people. Muslims have been doing this for since the 1400s. This is not new material. So, that's about all we have time for tonight. And next week, we're going to continue with the history of how the church, one act after another, is gradually separated from the nation Israel.